You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with John Bard. John is founder of Velocity Coaching and with co-author Edward Sullivan, recently published the book Leading with Heart. John is considered to be one of the premier executive coaches in Silicon Valley. Having coached CEOs and founders for over 25 years, John built his career working with the top leaders at companies ranging from early stage startups to Fortune 500 firms like Apple and Nike. On today's show, we talk about what questions should someone ask when looking for an executive coach, heart-led companies versus fear-led companies, is it different coaching Fortune 500 CEOs for CEOs from early stage startups, what do you need to see or hear to be able to say someone is a leader and much more? All right, and with that, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. John, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Before we start the interview, I really want to thank Brian Sparks, who made this introduction. I've known Brian. In fact, Brian was a past guest on this show. He talked about communication. It was around episode 130 or so. So for all our listeners, please go back to our archives. Check out that episode. It's an amazing episode. You'll get at any level of a company, you'll take tidbits away from it that can drastically change your career. But I've known Brian for years. He told me from day one, hey, I have this coach, this guy that I've known my entire life. His name's John. You have to have him on, on your show. For, I don't know, maybe a year or two now, I, I kept saying, yeah, I'd love to have him on my show. I'd love to have him on my show. Well, today he's here. So John, I want to thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast for this, for this amazing episode. But you know, my first question, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about your career, what you've worked on, and you've just launched a book that, what was it? Top five in leadership awards for, mm -hmm. Yes, talk about that yes. as well. Well, I want to say a, a special shout out to Brian. He's a wonderful person. I've known him most of my life. He actually grew up and skied with my son. So his dad, and I'm not the skier they are, but I've known Brian forever. And it's so exciting to see his coaching career just take off. So it's been fun. I feel like at times, in some ways, Sean, that I, I'm coached by Brian. So I think if you're not coached by the other person, I am a coach, but if it's not like a conversation and you're not learning from the other person, then it's probably not a relationship that continues. So I love Brian. So a shout out to Brian. So, so do you find during your coaching, you're learning more from the, I don't, don't want to say mentee than the, 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 the mentors learning more from the, the mentee than vice versa? Yeah. I think there's always learning that takes place. I mean, when you think about the fact that we at Velocity Coaching work with companies at all different stages. So we sometimes get them early stage where they're sitting on 60 million <laughs> and the team is now maybe 12, 15 people, but growing and the hiring is going to happen. And then you move into the next stage and the next stage. And they're biotech companies as well. And they're science companies that maybe we don't know a lot about. You're always learning about their business. So it's the different needs that the company has to create the culture, to scale the company. So no, I feel like if you're not learning as a coach, you probably need to sort of hang it up. Uh, most coaches are in coaching. We have coaches. 
Some coaches have therapists. <laughs> so uh, you have to be continually reflecting on yourself, what you're doing, what you're not doing, what's working, not working. So yes, if, you're, if you don't have a growth mindset and learning, it's, it's not a good thing and on both sides. So right there, I'm kind of imagining our audience listening to this going, Wait a second. Velocity coaching, 60 million small. Wait, who is this guy? Tell us a little mm. bit. Tell us a little bit about your career up to, you know, what you're doing right now to this coaching. Yeah. I always wanted to be a coach. I was actually a swimming coach, mainly because I was a high school and college swimmer. And I, in high school, admired my swimming coach, Glenn Moore, who was just a wonderful teacher coach. He was good with young people, uh, you know, and we were emotional and frustrated. He was just really good at the way he said things. He was really good at messaging things in the right way, motivating you, inspiring you. I went on and became kind of a swim coach, you know. My summer job was coaching and coaching swimming. I love that. I went on and, and then became a teacher and I look back at my university teaching, particularly at San Jose State, but I also taught at General Motors Institute for seven years. So once I finished my dissertation, I went to work for GM, and it was called GMI. People in the audience may know of GMI. It's now the Kettering Institute, but it's part-time work and part-time school. Left there, went to San Jose State, and then at that point in time, I was there maybe 10 plus years, and I started doing a lot of consulting for companies. Hewlett Packard at the time. What yeah. were you teaching when you were, when you were there? Was Leadership, organizational development, organizational change, organizational psychology, communication. I taught a lot in the MBA program at San Jose State. So I always had a couple of MBA classes as well. So I think I was getting a little anxious at the time, wanting to do more work for companies because I was getting a lot of consulting opportunities. And the consulting also brought in a lot more income than you're paid as a professor at a San Jose State. So I started consulting and started doing work at Apple. And I developed this negotiation class for Apple, which I took on the road for about a year and a half. But at that point in time, Apple just said, you know, I think we'd like to buy your time for a year. For so, our audience, was Apple a trillion dollar company at this time or when mm -hmm. was this happening? Oh, this was the early stage of Apple. This was before Steve Jobs came back. Apple had a tough time. And Steve had to reinvent Apple when he came back. But this was all before all that, before he came back. And I ended up doing this negotiation class for Apple for a long time. And then they just said, you know, we'd love to have you come and work with us at Apple University. There's still an Apple, Uni Apple University at Apple. But this was early Apple University. And I ended up developing more courses, doing more work with them. And they kind of hired me for a year. And I did that year with Apple. And then... I just decided, I don't think I want to go back. I want to continue being a coach. That year enabled me to do coaching work with early stage Apple people. And this was when Steve came back. I think you probably know the Steve Jobs story. They fired Steve Jobs. It's like the CEO that took over. It did not work. He went away, kind of gained a lot with Pixar and, and Next and all those places that he worked and came back to Apple. And so that was the time that I started doing work with the iPhone team at that time. When Steve had left with the changes come back, did the culture at Apple change at all? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he was so product focused and I think they lost some of that. I mean, it's hard to be a leader in a company like 
Apple without having good technology just prowess. And he was brilliant as an innovator and with technology. I think Apple lost that. I think they lost their way with that. And he began redefining the products that Apple would put out. That was some of the early work for me in coaching that was, I think, extremely important in forming my first coaching company, which was Executive Edge of Silicon Valley with Michelle Bolton. And so coaching at Apple is not easy. Sean, uh, it's not. It's they're demanding individuals. The standards are high. They're high growth individuals. They want to do well. They aspire for you know higher positions, etc. So, but it really um, gave me just a lot of coaching strategies and techniques to work with a lot of different companies. It was the beginning of my first coaching company. Gosh, there's so many different directions I, I want to take this yeah, interview right yeah. now. I want to ask about Steve. I want to ask about coaching. I want to. I mean, just right there. When you're coaching kind of the best of the best, is there a difference in coaching maybe at a corporation versus a CEO at a startup versus a CEO at a later stage? Or is it is all coaching coaching? I think there are some principles of coaching that transcend the environment and startup versus, you know, the, the large companies. There, there are leadership principles that just work around who you are as a leader, your values, your leadership style, all those things. But it does depend. I mean, there are people that find it harder to sort of lead and manage at an Apple, for example, right? They, their style might be better someplace else. I mean, it's interesting. Amazon has sort of a, a way, an Amazon style. A lot of people say, I'm not an Amazon employee, right? Because Amazon has a certain way, a certain culture. Others love Amazon style. DoorDash is a, is a very accountable kind of a culture, one of our clients. And they do very, very well in sort of managing results and expectations. Some people find that pressure harder. So it does depend. I mean, early stage companies with young founders require different coaching. It's like if they'd never been, Sean, a C-suite executive out of an eBay, an Apple, or a high-tech company, never been in a startup before at all, and here they are leading a company. Oh my gosh. It's it in many ways you have to start back to some basics. And and if they're motivated to actually improve their their own leadership and build their company, it's great because they're all learners. They come out of learning environments, but many of them have all the credentials, PhDs, MBAs, et cetera, lots of science and biotech, et cetera, but have never actually studied leadership or thought about leadership or thought about building culture. So... I started my second company, Velocity Coaching, after Executive Edge because I wanted to bring practices of good leadership to early stage startups when most of my clients are millennials. So when they're young and they can actually begin to make a difference in building their culture. And that's how Velocity Coaching was really founded on sort of early ventures. So with that, you mentioned, my question was, talk about coaching at different levels. I heard leadership, leadership, leadership over and over again there. Tell us in your mind, what a leader is? Is there a leadership crisis right now? Where are all the leaders? How is leadership different everywhere? I think there is a leadership crisis. Uh, I think it's a crisis in the sense of people stepping back and asking questions like we talk about in Leading with Heart around what's working and not working with their companies. Leading with Heart, that's your book, correct? That's the book, yes. And Leading with Heart is all about having the right conversations, right, in the right way. We, you know, I don't know but about you, Sean, but tough conversations are not easy to have. So we found in doing the research with uh, hundreds of people that we interviewed for the book that there are these five conversations that really come out as being really important. And it's like, what are my needs? What are my gifts? What are my desires? What are my fears? What's my purpose? And then how do I build culture 
of heart and not fear. And that's the leadership crisis because people these days just expect to be in companies that lead with heart and get results. And we find in leading with heart, our companies that lead with heart, they also get results. I mean, lots of examples in companies where that's the case. So the crisis, I think, is just stepping back and being able to say as a leader, and we're lucky at Velocity Coaching, we get, I think, leaders who actually feel as though they they need and want a coach. You look at all the star athletes, right? They all have coaches. They have nutrition coach, mental coach, stress coach. I mean, Steph Curry has multiple coaches, right? And so the idea of coaching is almost expected now in Silicon Valley because you just can't do it without guidance, mentoring, and then even behavioral change. We can talk more about that, which is changing your behavior to become a better leader in general. So before talking about that, there was the comment of leading with fear versus leading with heart. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of each of those? Yeah. Um, This is a question I think, uh, Sean, that's really a good one. It's one we get asked a lot. People are leaving companies these days, not because of compensation, not because of benefits, not because of work-life balance. There may be some of that with some people. They're leaving because they're not feeling valued. It's the culture is toxic. You look at the fact that so many individuals, there's lots of research to support this, that you know, people are not staying in those companies. They're just, uh, they're finding, even though the, those companies are getting results, some of them, we have some companies getting results, but still the cultures are toxic. <laughs> My sense is that catches up with those companies. Uh, eventually it becomes uh, something that doesn't keep the company going in the right direction for a lot of reasons. But fear-based cultures, it's hard to speak out and be honest it's there's a lack of transparency. Uh, information is often controlled at the top. People are not really feeling valued in their roles. Information is controlled. Lots of finger pointing. Things are you know, it's it's this person's fault, that person's fault, but nothing is really being talked about. And so lots of things going on behind the scenes. It brings up the example interesting around the whole speed dating and iPhone situation, which kind of is interesting, right? Tell us about that. (laughs) Right. It's in the book around this, right? So I had been working at Apple, I think for, oh, a a number of years, I think two, two years or so. And I forget which iPhone launch this was, maybe iPhone 2. But John Rubenstein, uh, we talk about in the book, who was just a really unique leader, I think in a lot of ways, not only technically, but also as a leader. Um, he was working for Steve Jobs, and I was actually consulting at that time with John. I was coaching John, and I had done a little bit of work with his team. But when you work at Apple, you often do these 360 feedback processes where you get feedback on how things are working, and you get feedback from the top of the organization as well. So you get a good idea of what is not working, right? John was frustrated. He was getting all of this feedback from members of his team that this person was not performing. That person was not performing. It was like this finger pointing. He was kind of in the middle and he would describe this as almost being the parent, the parent between all these children (laughs) that are having all these issues. Well, I said to John, I said, we've got to disrupt this. I have this thing about when things are not working, you've got to call it out. You've got to do something. You might call it, Sean, an intervention, but Maybe that's not a great word, but you've got to do something to change the dynamic of the group, right? So we developed this process called speed dating. And it's become kind of a classic. I'm using it next week. I'm going to Raleigh-Durham for an offsite. We're doing speed dating at the offsite. And it really involves feedback. I don't know, Sean, do you get a lot of feedback on how you're doing? 
Well, my wife tells me every day. So. <laughs> so Michelle tells you every day how you're doing, right? It's every like, day. But it's funny because I already know what she's going to say. So, <laughs> so this loop is a continual broken record. A continual record. broken record, right? Around that, you get those, right? But we designed this exercise where we put them all in a room. So I remember this, this, we were at Apple and it was not the new Apple campus, but the old Apple campus. I forget just what building, but uh, everybody, there were, I think, eight people or so on the team. We put them in pairs, you know, twos, two, 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 two around the room. And they had to speak to each person using three, what I call magical questions, because feedback is the magic. We often don't get feedback. And if we get it, we don't know what to do with it. And, you know, it stays there and we don't change all of that. But the three questions are what's working in our relationship? Uh, what isn't working in our relationship. This is feedback that I would get. If you and I were paired up, I would tell you, oh, keep doing this, Sean. I love this. This is what works best with us. This is what's not working for me. And each person does that, the other person. And the last question is, what can we do to improve our working relationship? What commitments can we make? Well, all of these pairs, four of them around the room, it took two hours to do this speed dating exercise, right? So we come back and we debrief it. And, every, and it just brought out everything, all the issues, all the issues of things that John could work on, the team could work on. I would say that if it weren't for speed dating, maybe that phone might not have gotten out. <laughs> that team actually came together because Steve was wanting, you know, he was pressuring with lots of things he wanted to see happen. John was feeling a lot of that pressure and getting feedback. The team wasn't working well together. When a team isn't working together, you know it at the top of the organization. So it's pretty exciting. How many tools in the toolbox like speed dating mm. do you have or that a coach should have if they want to have this tool belt to for every situation? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I think our coaches, we have uh, 26 coaches so worldwide because we coach all over the world. And it's interesting. We get together with our coaches with monthly meetings and we share practices and tools. And this is one, speed dating is one, but there are frames around having difficult conversations, ways to think about strategy. How do you redefine your purpose? We have a lot of companies right now that are coming back to their purpose as they're reframing their organization because of cutbacks and just, just all kinds of things happening. So purpose tools, ways to think about your values, reframing that, coming back to your why. Why are you actually doing these? Are we still, do we still have a why that makes sense to people, right? We have tools around decision-making. I would say the hardest thing for companies in general is decision-making. Who decides? How do you decide? How do you engage people? We have companies, Sean, that are over-consensus-driven. Everything is a group think and a, a process by which everybody is involved. It's like, a, and we have companies that are command and control. And we like to think, and this is a tool, to think a little bit about what's the best decision model for this topic. Who should be in the room? Who is the decider? Who takes the actions and makes it happen? Who's what we would call the DRI? Do you know what that is, Sean? The directly right. responsible individual. DoorDash, for example, you never leave a meeting without clarity on the DRI. If we decided this, who's driving this? Who's, gonna, who's responsible for actually getting it across the line? You can have the conversation with the leaders, but who's going to make it happen? So those are tools that we use a lot to help actually become better at those things. That's interesting with the DRI for every meeting. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen in the news driving here this morning? It was 
this tech company is laying off 1300, this tech company is laying off 10%. This, if we go into a deep recession, mm-hmm. what's going to happen to these companies, corporate values, their why, their everything that was just mentioned right now? I think it becomes even more important to re- refresh all that. And for the companies that are really thriving, I think will thrive through this, even though they've had to reset and they've had to get rid of employees, et cetera. And I think we'll probably see more of this as it happens. If they're clear on their why and their purpose, and they can even redefine. I, I do think moments like this cause organizations to say, we're going to play here, but not there. We've been wanting to sort of cut that part of the organization because it's not really adding to the ROI and the bottom line. It's tough to lose people like that because some of those people have been with us a long time in organizations, but it's causing organizations to redefine who they are, why they're doing what they're And if they do that work, motivate them by saying, there's a place for you. I mean, it's tough right now. We're going to be smaller. We're going to be more agile, but our mission has not changed. So that work around culture and focus and strategy and gosh, organizations are trying Sean, to do too many things. So I call it the critical few. What are you focusing on that's really important to move to that next place or to be successful that next quarter? So again, focus, 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 redefine, redefine, clarity, clarity, clarity on who we are. It's all what's going to survive, I think. Should companies be thinking about the next quarter or should be thinking about the next years? Both. If you don't have cash, you're not going to survive. You got to have that. You got to be, and you got to manage that. And that may mean managing people out. It may mean refocusing uh, priorities, et cetera. But we also have to think about the future as well. So I, I coach people to have a long-term strategy. And what's long-term in a startup? I'd like them to think a year or two out. Beyond that is hard for people to do. And then think quarterly. 30, 60, 90 days. So all my clients have 30, 60 day, 90 plans. They all involve uh, resources, priorities, cash, but they're also mission driven and they're focused on the things that are going to make the company successful. So decisions that are key to keep the company thriving and surviving. Okay. Now I'm going to use that decision-making to go back to a little bit earlier of a topic, Apple, Mm. Steve Jobs, decision-maker. Was he I mean, there's so many rumors about him. There's so this, everyone has the persona of him that have never talked to him or met him, but you were there for so long. Was he misunderstood? What, what's your take? Well, Steve never really had a coach. I never coached Steve at all. I certainly coached a lot of people around Steve and had lots of opportunity to observe the culture in action, right? He had a lot of mentors and took a lot of walks with his mentors and was really good at seeking out advice from trusted few. What is the difference there between a mentor and a coach? I think the mentors, they can cross over at times, but the mentor, uh, Bill Campbell would be a good mentor. Somebody you trust, a trusted advisor, experience, has been there, done that, confidant where you could tell things to them, also someone who could give you advice. Lots of judgments about Boy, I'm thinking about this scenario, that scenario. Well, let's talk about them. Bill Campbell was a master at asking the right questions. So he was also a coach as well. So So would you say a mentor is more, they've had that industry experience where a coach is more big picture, let's ask you questions, you give me the answers? Yeah, I I think coaches are, our coaches have business experience. We have hired coaches that have frameworks for changing behavior and working with teams and culture but they've also been there. 
either have been startup founders themselves or have been in large corporations. We like the combination of the business model with the leadership frameworks together because those are the best coaches in general. Let's um, go back to Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Misunderstood, visionary from, from your experience. I don't know so much as misunderstood. There's a lot of stories written. I think there's going to be more stories written about, you know, just what really he was like. He was so innovative and people stayed with him because he just had such a way of just doubling down on what the market needed, the things that we never knew we wanted. He was not just a technical genius around products and how they worked. He was a genius around marketing as well. He was tough to work with, but people who thrived at Apple, and many of those people are still there, just really enjoyed being tested. You had to be tough in the room. We have this concept that we call in our coaching called the left-hand column. I'm not sure you know what that means, but the right-hand, Sean, is what's being said around the table. The left-hand is what is being thought, but not being spoken. So there's a lot of research that suggests that teams characterized by respectful, because I think you have to have respect for people and say things in ways that are respectful, characterized by left-hand columns are very productive teams. MIT had some research around this. I mean, teams that are too nice to each other and not dealing with the difficult issues, I want to disrupt that a little bit through more left hands. People leave companies because they can't raise their left hand. (laughs) Steve Jobs was probably a walking left hand column. (laughs) You always knew what he was thinking and feeling. And that was hard for people. And um, But he gave space for people to solve problems. He was great at focus. He never introduced things like lots of things. He would say, no, not on this iPhone. It's these things. We're going to focus on these critical things. He knew how to zoom in and zoom out. He could zoom in and go down three levels and work on a font or a quality of the phone and then zoom out and think about what does the consumer really want? And he was a master at hiring. People wanted to work with him. He also hired Tim Cook, who complimented him, I think, during that time and was able to deal with all those, I think, organizational, operational, because he was COO. He was very operational. He's a strong operational CEO even now. He complimented. He knew how to hire talent. And people don't think about that. And that's the part that's misunderstood with Steve, I think. Now, you've been in the Valley here a long time. Long time. Yes. (laughs) When you hear a company present, are you able to maybe some sixth sense or maybe some just so much experience go, Uh that CEO, that startup founder, he's a leader? Yeah, I think, I don't think I always have the answer to that. I think, you know, it's interesting, Sean, we're getting asked by venture firms to help them be better in their selection process around not just product market fit, business plan, all those things. I mean, a lot of these VC firms will say, we want that company, right? It's just, they're going to really make the market. They're thinking that, wow, we need some advice on leadership. Because for some of them, they actually, the VCs, they actually see these flags on leadership. They see a style of leadership or they'll watch them with their team when they pitch and they get a sense that this is not probably going to be a leadership that, so they want us to help assess that. I think what I look for in a leader is a lot of passion and a lot of inspiration, a lot of just being able to talk a narrative and a story about that business and its impact on people, whether it's people's lives, if it's biotech and patient care or whatever it might be, but can articulate that very, very well. And I also look at whether or not they have a business model that really makes sense, right? And do they talk a little bit about how their team 
is able to be a part of? Do they share that? Is there motivation to to share some of the successes and to engage the team in some way? And are they clear on who they are? So if they're clear on who they are, even if their style is different and it's not you know, a style that's that's uh, this way or that way, are they clear on who they are? So I look for all those things, clarity of mission, values, who they are. I look for why they're coaching as well. I actually like getting people, Sean, that are a little bit like feeling pressure and they're feeling it's they're down. It's a, it's a period where they just say, oh my God, I don't really know. This is just, it's not going well. When people are in a little bit of pain, it's interesting. Sometimes they are better at, as a coaching client. So I look for a little bit of vulnerability, confidence, but vulnerability, that mix that I just don't know how to do this. And I could really use a coach. They just go up the coaching curve so much faster. With that, I mean, one topic that's come up on this podcast in the past was people that they've had exits and we've talked about it and they're like, listen, you may think I'm successful, but I had imposter syndrome for mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of my career. Is, is that kind of what you're referring to? The people going, you know, I kind of need that coach. Is it that imposter syndrome? And, and if so, how do you get over that? Well, we talk about this in the fear chapter. It's interesting, that chapter on what are we afraid of? And that's the one that talks about the imposter syndrome. We all have it. I have it. We all have it. We all worry about things that we don't don't know about or wonder about. Think about these young millennials that have just, you know, they have this great idea and they just got all the support in their university, in their college, and they came out of Y Combinator and they've got this great company and they're handed 40 to 50 to $100 million to build this company. And they've never been a leader in that way. Oh my God, it's like, there's so much they don't know. So we get a lot of that feedback, Sean, from them. We get a lot of the vulnerability. One of the things we try to do is to help them name some of those fears and be able to even talk about some of those fears, either with us, with their teams, and even becoming more open with their investors. Their investors actually would like to know, and of course, this is the fear. I mean, these are the people investing. If, if I say I don't know something, they'll have no confidence in me. And they'll phase me out as a leader. They worry about that. They worry about, are they, because they've never been this leader before. So, but we, we coach them to, to bring out some of those things that their investors can help with. Find a mentor about this. What is it you don't know? Who could you talk to about that? Could you raise that issue at a board meeting? Board members actually like it when, when our founders actually say things like, you know, I'm worried about this. Oftentimes what founders do, they present all good news. <laughs> so, and the investors know it's not all good news. So we get them to name those things, bring them out in the right way and have a conversation to get help and support. Do you have any, I mean, our audience loves to get actionable advice. Do you have any suggestions on how to bring up bad news at a board meeting or to investors? Mm. I often suggest that you pre-talk those ideas to key investors. Have some one-on-ones. There's always a lead investor that you have some confidence in. I always will say, you know, who, who can you talk to before you do that? And get some advice on how that might be brought. Sometimes that board member will bring up that information. I like the script at a meeting of what's working, how's the business plan going, what's the bottom line results. It's the, it's the monetary stuff. I also like the part where the CEO, he or she can talk a little bit about, here's what's working for me. Here's what I'm doing to build the team. And here's what I worry about. I worry about this on the team. I worry about this particular team player. How can you begin just making that 
part of the script of every board meeting. So you just have these conversations about what you worry about. Investors like it. They worry, the investors worry that the founders and leaders are not asking those questions and they're not bringing them up with us. How much time should a, a CEO spend focused on the members of their team versus building the company? I know it's kind of one the same, mm. but at the same time, they are kind of splitting the mind into mm -hmm. two. Mm -hmm. I think it, as a company scales, it's really important for the CEO and the founder to actually get their leaders to hire the right people and get them to actually begin doing the work, right? And and making it all happen. So empowering all those people, we work a lot with whether or not they have the right team in place to scale and investors worry about that as well. So that's a constant thing around talent assessment in general. So helping our founders work one-on-one. -on -one. So I think that's the focus. The team needs to work well and the leaders and the CEO needs to let go of some things and allow the people to sort of make those key decisions, right? At the same time, that founder has to build the culture and expect the leadership to also build the culture, to push a lot of these things down through the organization. So it's talked about at the executive team meeting, but how do we get those things to cascade down? So if you're not building culture and as the company scales, it all changes, Sean. Communication changes, one-on-ones change a little bit, how you show up in all hands meetings. If you're global, how you do the global communications, it becomes more complicated. So, and it's more distance. It's always, you know, it's different than the early stage. So you've got to design things where people feel connected. And so those, those ways of communicating become very important and founders have to really select them carefully. Okay. I caught something you said there, the making sure everyone feels connected. Okay. The last two years, a lot of companies have been built completely remote. How have they been able to feel connected? They haven't. And for a lot of people, it's just been really tough. And I think for some people, they just haven't survived that. Um, we work a lot with people and how the work environment is obviously going to change. And so we have a lot of companies that are trying to figure out exactly what their, their model is for people coming back. I like clarity, calling out what it is and what it isn't, right? We want everybody here on Friday. For you, this is three days a week. Everybody will be in every single day because we are a touch company just being really clear on who you really are. I think we've vacillated a lot back and forth. People have gotten comfortable with, you know, the the Zoom, but there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. My work in Raleigh with the team, I'm doing this work with the team is all going to be face-to-face -face, and many of them had not been together. So I'm doing a lot of exercises to reconnect them. It's like they met online and they even hired online, right? Through Zoom and yet now they're together. And so we're doing some exercises to really engage them and build their relationships with each other. These exercises. Now, one thing when I looked at your website is doing some research, you do a lot of retreats. Yeah. Now, yeah. what happens for our audience out there? You know, what happens at one of these retreats? Mm -hmm. How do you bring everyone together? What knowledge can you pass on from there that you're willing to share with our audience? Yeah, well, they're all carefully designed. And because we're business coaches, those retreats always deal with business decisions and business issues. But we have a team performance survey that is filled up by everybody before the offsite happens. And then I typically interview everybody, including the founders. And then we design what that offsite looks like. And it's usually a balance, John, of connecting activities, team building kinds of things, and then decision-making activities that drive the organization. There's always a strategic component to it. But we have a number of exercises we do. We have this exercise called the electronic maze. 
and it's been shipped to Raleigh-Durham for a retreat I'm doing next week. It's a huge carpet. It's like nine by 12. It's got these squares on it. It's all electronic. It has all these beeps and they have to figure out how to get from A to B. And there's a record. That's like, you know, I think, uh, I forget which company. Now, Apple used to hold the record for, I don't think they hold it anymore. There's another company that actually uh, beat their record, but they have to kind of work together and problem solve on how to get there. And then you debrief them as a team and you see who supported who, how did they support each other? What worked? How does this parallel what really happens in the real world? So we do a lot of activities that promote connections and relationship building. And we do a lot of work in helping them have conversations about difficult things. So all the left-hand things that, that were raised in the interviews will be talked about at the offsite. So we kind of force left-hand conversations. Okay, now going back, let's talk about the book a little bit. Yeah. Lights on, lights off moment. What does that mean, lights on, lights off? Well, this is in the book, and it's, it, it actually is an example that it is my lights on and my lights on experience, lights on and lights off. We, in my first company with Michelle Bolton, we, uh, we wanted to reinvent Executive Edge. We weren't sure we were doing all the right things. I was also, Sean, getting a lot of opportunity to do some work with startup companies. And I was really feeling just like this excitement. I love the startup environment because I love kind of uncertainty and ambiguity, et cetera. And I just love just new ventures in general. And I love young founders. So we had this consultant in Denver, Colorado, and it was a husband and wife team. And they videotape you separately from each other. So my partner had a videotape and and I had a videotape session. And then they show you your video, but they asked you during the video, all these questions. When are you at your best? When do you find the most joy? When are you not at your best? In general, they defined my and Michelle's lights on and lights off moments. And what came out of that was my need to work with younger founders and to do more with venture firms and to to start work in the startup community. So, I mean, Michelle was a wonderful partner. So I transitioned out of that company and started Velocity Coaching because that was a lights-on moment. I, I realized that at this stage in my life, I've got to follow that lights-on moment. So I changed it and I sold that company and started a new one <laughs> So because oh. of that experience. Okay. One, one last question for wrapping it up. See you, coach. CEO or a, a CEO or someone looking for for coaching anywhere in the world, mm. what questions should they ask to screen the coach? Mm. That is such a good question, and we get asked it a lot. I'm not sure we always come up with the right answer to that because it's such an individual thing. I would start with why. Why are you coaching? Why do you need a coach? What what's going on with you around that? So why is this important to get a coach? Has somebody told you to have a coach? Uh, have you met somebody who had an experience with coaching? But why for you personally? Right? Is it about business strategy? Is it about you just feel like personally you're just not connecting with employees? You're not sure how to build a culture or a team? What why? And then I would ask the question: so what is your approach? coach, if you're talking to a coach, what is your approach to coaching? How do you go about coaching? What would it look like for us to coach together? And probably a little why in there too. Why would I choose you as a coach? And there are lots of different kinds of coaches. There's life coaches, there's uh, more business coaches, there's more behavioral change coaches around style. And then I would really probe a lot of, give me examples of experiences you've had with, with clients and how have you worked with 
that. And I would ask questions like, tell me your most difficult experience, right? Tell me your coaching best. When were you most lights on as a coach? And make that judgment on the what, the why, and the how. <laughs> so, All right, John, I'm going to end, end this with uh, asking you another question. When has your lights been on? When was it uh, the most difficult time for you? And leave out names, but any stories you can share and how you helped would be fantastic. Mm. I do like taking companies public. So if I've started with them in the early stage and I was able to bring them through mid-stage, 150, 300, those are lights on moments because in that journey, Sean, there's always lots of just coaching and changing of leadership. So I think about lots of companies I've worked with. Marketo is an interesting one. It's one of my first ones. And I, I love the fact that they actually went public and I worked so hard with that team and with Phil Fernandez around that and all the work that we did together. I look at that as lights on. When I can see behavioral change and just success around the leadership and the team and also business success, those are lights on moments for me. Because it's not just about the interpersonal leadership style. It's about what does that result in? Are you really getting that company to move to the next place? And how are you treating people in the process? So I like the fact that culture was built and it was somewhat sustained. And so I see some of that work still in progress. All right. With that, John, if anyone wants to buy your book, find out more information about you, yourself, what you're working on, what are some links, websites, how can they find out more? Right. You can go to Amazon and just look up Leading with Heart, Live Conversations. I have to say a shout out to Edward Sullivan, my co-author. He's, he's also CEO of Velocity Coaching. So you could get in touch with Edward uh, and that can happen at velocitycoaching.com. Fantastic. We're going to have that those links and information in the show notes. Once again, I want to thank Brian Sparks for making the introduction that allowed this interview to happen. Also for everyone, check out his interview. Like I said, I think it was around episode 130 or something on on communication, fantastic episode. And for our audience out there, when I'm not hosting the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Feel free to reach out to me, connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. And also go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com to see our archive with all our amazing guests. And with that, John, thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, Sean. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.